0: I would invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, and Acts chapter 14 is where we're at, and uh, Lauren is going to come, and she's going to read our passage today, but it's Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 8 and reading through verse 18. So let's stand together, and uh, we will study God's Word together. After we read and pray, Um, we will jump into the message. Lauren?
1: Now at at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, They lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men! satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them.
0: Lord, we come to you today thankful for your word and Lord, how it guides us and how it teaches us and Lord, how it instructs us to live our lives in a way that would please you. Uh, Lord, not simply out of uh, out of duty and fear of you. But Lord, because you want you want us to enjoy the, the life that you've given us. You want us to enjoy having communion with you. And, and so Lord, would you continue to do your work in us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? What we know not, would you teach us? And what we have not, Lord, would you give us? And Lord, allow me to be your messenger, uh, Lord, so that your word uh, can be proclaimed and understood and received, that your people will be built up And those that don't know you would would see the wonders and the beauty of your gospel. Lord, we ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When I lived in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan, it was only natural that I would be a casual fan of the Detroit Tigers baseball team. And of course, while I was living in Detroit area at that point in time, uh, the Detroit Tigers won the World Series. It was a quite a, an eventful time. But the manager of the team, his name was Sparky or Sparky Anderson. Sorry. And um, as, as a manager, he was great. But at the same time, he was known for something. He was known for having a superstition that he would never step on the line at a baseball game. He would always stop and then step over and then continue out if he was going out to the pitcher's mound or something like that. And it was the superstition that he began when he was in high school that continued on into his baseball career. And friends, superstitions are all around us, aren't they? They become the fabric and the language of our culture. Here are some you might be aware of. Knocking on wood or touching wood. The history of that we don't know. Some historians say this came about because There was a belief that there were spirits that lived in the trees, and so you'd go and you'd knock on the wood, and hopefully it would be a good spirit that would respond. Not walking under a ladder. And again, looking at the history of that, some of that actually is theological, because a ladder made this triangle, and that's a picture of the Trinity, and you don't want to mess with it. I don't know, it seems more practical to me. I don't want to walk under a ladder. I don't want to have some hammer falling on my head, right? Um, a broken mirror brings bad luck, or a picture of someone that drops and smashes is like an omen's bad luck for those people. Black cats, fingers crossed, horseshoes—one way good luck, another way bad luck. This came up yesterday: the groom seeing the bride on the wedding day before the actual ceremony will bring bad luck if that happens. Friday the thirteenth. There's a number of different theories about what that day is all about. Certainly, the number 13 is superstitiously considered unlucky. But Friday the 13th of October is when King Philip IV of France arrested and put to death hundreds of Templar knights. In China, the number 4 is a number that sounds like death, and so it's avoided. In Turkey, chewing gum at night is something you don't do because... It is believed that it causes people to turn into flesh-eating cannibals. So look out if you're ever in Turkey um, for people that are chewing gum too late. In Russia, this is my experience, you don't drink Coke with ice because it's believed that you'll catch cold. In the Indian culture, it's believed that you should never sleep with your head pointing north because if your head's pointing north, then your feet are in the south and the balance of the magnetism is not going to be good for your body. Okay, think that one through. This weekend is the master's. And it's not going to be too surprising that someone this week is going to go out to some store and they're going to get some black pants and a red shirt because they're they're sure that if they put on black pants and a red shirt, they're going to play golf just like Tiger Woods. And the problem is that Tiger Woods got it from Lee Trevino. but That's a whole other story. see, we laugh at these superstitious practices, because so many of them just don't make any rational sense at all. But if we're honest friends, we may also struggle with superstition. Let me give you a, a subtle way this came to my awareness when I was a, a young man still in seminary. Um, and, and grew, you know, I was saved, obviously, in the church at about 16 and went off to college. And one of the things that was popular during that time was you would, you would hear a pastor maybe at a conference or some special occasion, and afterwards people would line up to see that pastor and shake his hands. And one of the things that you did is you took your Bible with you, and you said, would you please sign my Bible? Would you please sign my Bible? And then if you had enough good signatures in that Bible, it would be wonderful. Look, look at all the signatures I have. And there's a sense in which uh, having those signatures was, was a benefit to you. And I always remember I had a Bible and I had a bunch of signatures from well-known pastors of the day. People you probably wouldn't know who they are. I can just think of three in particular that come to mind because I couldn't dig out this Bible and find it. But Ian Paisley, you probably don't know who that is, but he was a well-known pastor in particular in Northern Ireland. He actually was the the, the prime minister of Northern Ireland while he came to the college I was at and spoke. Um, Then there was... Bob Jones III, who was the president of the college I attended, and John MacArthur, Jr., pastor of Grace Community Church, you probably know that name, and there's many, many more. And there's the sense in which if my Bible has the signatures of all these spiritual people, and now I'm getting up into the pulpit and I'm preaching, that somehow this Bible has more power and my (laughs) preaching is going to be more effective. It's subtle, isn't it? I mean, I actually wondered, because I had signatures on one side and I had signatures on the other side, and I wondered if, if these guys had different theological positions if I close my Bible, that somehow the signatures would be fighting each other. See, we kind, of, we kind of delve into this mysticism when it comes to being superstitious. Obviously, it's foolish, but it's infusing power into something that is not necessarily meant to have power. And friends, as we define superstition... I want you to think maybe of two definitions. One of them's gonna be up there, but superstition takes place when people believe that an action, an object, an idea, or an experience can affect a situation even if they are in no way related. Or to put it just a little bit differently like you have on the screen there, it is the belief that an action, object, or idea, or experience is somehow infused with power to accomplish something, often what I desire that if I'm playing or watching a baseball game and I say, hey, bada, bada, batter, batter! hey, bada, 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 batter!" that somehow that person's going to strike out. And if they don't strike out and the person next to me wasn't saying, hey, batter, bada, batter, batter," well, how come you're not saying "Batter, bada, batter, batter?" As if saying that is going to cause that person to strike out. Or if I'm wearing Tiger Woods outfit that I'm going to hit the drive 300 plus yards. But that I'm going to preach better with signatures in my Bible, or I'm stepping on the line, or dropping a picture, or crossing the paths with a black cat is somehow going to bring out negative power, and that, of course, would be bad luck. But friends, what Luke wants to drive into our thinking this morning is that the gospel liberates us from pagan superstition. Now, friends, hear this. The gospel liberates liberates us from pagan superstition. Because if you're living your life apart from God, you're functioning on your own terms and man's ideas. And much of that is full of all sorts of different kinds of superstition. Now, our text takes us to a place called Lystra. Paul and Barnabas are on this missionary journey. Mark has left we didn't mention that last time because it happens in chapter 13, but he has gone back to Jerusalem. So now it's just Paul and Barnabas, and they're on this journey, and they find themselves in Lystra, about 20 miles south of Iconian, really a a, a, a distinctly rural setting. It was in 6 BC, the location of a Roman colony, but through the years it had degenerated into what we would call podunk, a podunk kind of town, uh, where the people are somewhat backward, Um, it's Hicksville, USA, Uh, it's a backwater community with simple folk, you might even call them hillbillies, right? That's that's the kind of reputation they had, it may not be the the truth of all of them, but it was that kind of attitude. Now, the question for us as we come to this text is this, what do you do when a context is so removed from anything Judeo-Christian, and you are truly in what would be considered heathen territory. Will the gospel be received? How do you go about spreading the good news? How will your methodology need to change? And that's what Luke wants us to see in this Lystra account. As the gospel advances further into pagan or heathen territory, Luke wants us to see that it will still impact those areas. And it will liberate the people from their pagan superstition. And he shows us then that really under three headings. Number one, the good news is illustrated. The good news is illustrated. And it's illustrated by a healing. As we we read verses 8 through 10, it's important to remember that this is the second volume of Luke's record to a man called Theophilus. So, This is not the first time that Theophilus has read about or experienced some paralytic being healed. The record of the healing here in Acts 14 is rather brief. And notice what it says. He says, stand upright on your feet. I mean, that's all we're given as far as 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 the words and the instruction. We're told he's a paralytic, that that, uh, Paul sees that he has faith to be made well. Stand up in your face. It's very, very truncated, isn't it? But that's because there's a backstory going on here. Luke has already laid a foundation for us, and Theophilus, to be sure, is making connections. So let's just think about what that backstory is. First of all, Luke chapter 5 and verses 17 through 26. Now, we're not going to read all of that, but there we see Jesus healing a paralytic. You remember the story. Jesus is in a home and he's got a crowd around him in that home. There's so many people, they're pressing in and there's four guys that are bringing their friend because they want him to be healed. And they can't get in, so they somehow they get up on top of the roof, they climb the stairs, get up there, they break a hole in the roof and they lower him down. Remember the story? And what does Jesus say to the man? He says, I say to you, this is verse 24, rise, pick up your bed and go home. It's not that this man was any more a sinner than anyone else, but it is that we are all living in a broken world, and we're broken because we have rejected the Creator. This is an illustration. Jesus is illustrating that man is broken. Man is in need. Man needs to be healed, and there's only one person that can do that. And Jesus comes to rescue us from this broken world with all its sickness, its sadness, its disease, its despair. He's come to save us. And when we turn to him, he forgives our sins and welcomes us into a whole new glorious future with him. So his first coming is just a snapshot of the glory that he's prepared for us. So how does the paralytic respond in Luke chapter 5? He rose up, we're told. He picked up his bed and he went home glorifying God. And the people who saw him were amazed. They were filled with awe. And then we jump ahead now to Acts chapter 3. You may remember this. This is not Jesus healing a paralytic. This is now Peter healing a paralytic. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This is very, very similar. Similar language, similar encounter. Peter encounters this paralytic, a lame man from birth, outside the temple in Jerusalem. And Peter looks at the paralytic intensely and says to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man leaps up, and he begins walking and leaping and praising God. I mean, yahoo, I can walk, I can walk, I can walk. Again? What is going on here? It's a picture of what Christ does through his gospel. He takes people who are broken. He gives them life. He heals them. He restores them. And all the people watching were filled with wonder and amazement. And now we come to Acts 14. And this is Paul and the paralytic. And what we find here is that very similar language is used. He sees that he has faith to be saved. He's looking intensely at him. And he says, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And how do the people respond? In awe and in amazement. So what we have here is a threefold picture of what Jesus came to do. He came to rescue us from the bondage and brokenness of this world and to usher us into a new creation. In other words, it's a picture of us. Once we are saved, we're the ones walking and leaping and praising God. Why? Because we've been rescued from our former life. So this is an earthly picture of our eternal reality, friends. We who are born broken can be healed through Christ and be raised up to experience new life. That is a wonderful thing, isn't it? So here here they come into Lystra And boom, there's this healing. That's the good news illustrated. Now the good news distorted. The good news distorted. I say distorted because man was created by God in paradise. But because of sin, man left to himself has created his own attempt at interacting with God. And it's not based on good news. The distorted bondage is what it's based on. It's based on this distorted bondage of superstition. Let's read verses 11 and following. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian. In other words, this is a, another language out there, right? The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and the priests of Zeus, whose temple Uh, was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So in verses 11 through 13, what do we find? We come face to face with pagan superstition. How do the religious leaders, the priests of Zeus in Lystra respond? They want to have a worship service to honor the gods, Zeus and Hermes, because they've come. And we're going we're to have sacrifices. We're going to have celebration. We're going to lift them up. Right? And friends, it should come as no surprise because what is being described here is standard fare for first century Greco-Roman world. In their thinking, there was a whole team called a pantheon of gods that controlled different parts of the universe. And Zeus was the head guard, head god, and Hermes was his messenger. And so in order to understand the context, we have to understand that there was a legend that was present prior to this about the interaction of the gods in this particular region. And the Latin poet Ovid describes this legend, in particular, both Zeus and Hermes, visiting incognito a village in this very region. They sought hospitality, but were repeatedly turned away until an old couple welcomed them into their humble home, gave them very humble circumstances to to spend the night in, gave them humble food, and then they left. But then they returned, Zeus and Hermes, to reward the couple, but then they also destroyed all that turned them away with the flood. So you have this backdrop of what's happening in this area, these people who are believing in this kind of religion going on. And so now these visiting strangers, there's two of them, they come with this evidence of divine power. It must mean the gods have returned. Barnabas they call Zeus, probably because of his silence and his age. And Paul is called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. I said, there's a backdrop. There's, there's, there's kind of a picture going on here. There's, there's reason for their response. Now, you can imagine what's in the minds of the people, people who have been used to worshiping in this pantheon of gods. That was a whole bunch of them, friends. I'm not going to list them all, but they each had different areas of responsibility. Here's just a few to think about. Mars, he was the god of war. Diana was the goddess of hunting. Venus, the goddess of love. Juno, the god of children. And I say god, little g. Right, In a world where so much of life was unpredictable, if you wanted to be sure of a good future or good fortune, you looked to manipulate a particular God who oversees a particular area of concern. So, for example, if you wanted to be sure that the hunt went well and you brought back food to feed your family or your village, you made sacrifice to Diana. And all would go well. If you were expecting a baby, you made a sacrifice to Juno and believed that the mother and the child would make it through successfully. If you were hoping to, to marry a particular person, you would go and you would offer a sacrifice to Venus. If you wanted your business to grow and be successful, you sacrificed to the God that related to business. If you wanted to do well in school, you sacrificed to the God who oversaw education. If you were going to war, you would sacrifice to Mars. Now, friends, in summary, when you have a need, you manipulated the respective God through a sacrifice to be sure you got a favorable outcome. This is how they thought. This is how they functioned. Now, if things didn't go well, the gods were not to blame. You were to blame because either you were interfering or you didn't offer enough sacrifice. And if you found yourself on the wrong side of a god, then you're in big trouble. You need to hurry up and make more sacrifices to appease that god. The gods there were very, very fickle in their thinking. You can just imagine all the ways this can turn out badly for an individual, right? You had a bad harvest. It's because you didn't pay enough attention to the God of harvest. If your child got sick and died, it's because you didn't please the gods. Friends, this would have been a life of bondage, anxiety, fear, uncertainty, and self-loathing that I am responsible for this outcome, because I didn't do enough. And what's at the heart of pagan superstition? You probably heard the word over and over and over again. Sacrifice. Working to please the gods. Seeking to manipulate the gods in your favor. How? By means of a sacrifice. And friends, Things haven't changed much, have they? We may think that we're more sophisticated, but people and religions are still in the grip of superstition. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, I was meeting with a large gathering of pastors and people in a local church here, and I was invited to come and give kind of like an ending prayer on this particular situation. It was a time when, uh, the, the Church was kind of uniting together because of of uh, Hurricane Katrina, if you remember uh, down in Houston, people were being housed in the in the the superdome down there, is that right the astrodome that 's what it is down there okay and and, and it was not a good situation there's one particular pastor that went with a team of people down there and he did ministry with this team, and he came back and he was the keynote speaker and and so people had come they prayed, and he got up, and he spoke and at the end of his talk. He had the ushers pass out wooden crosses to everyone who was there. And he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to put this wooden cross in your pocket. And every time you're afraid, every time you need help, every time you're struggling in a situation, you can reach down into your pocket and you can rub the cross. You can rub the cross. And then I got up to pray. I mean, how do you undo what was said? This was just another form of Christianized pagan superstition. And so all, the only thing I could do was to point to a sovereign God who established Christ as your only hope. Not, Lord, help us to remember to rub our cross-shaped rabbit's foot. You See, superstition can be in the church, friends. And sometimes we don't even recognize it's there. And there are many things within the, the broad tent, I say very broad tent of religious Christianity that are presented as spiritual, that are in actuality superstitious. And there are nuances that make them superstitious. The cross that you're wearing around your neck might identify you as a Christian, but it's not going to protect you from evil. It hasn't got any extra spiritual power at all to navigate against evil. It is an object. It has no power in and of itself. Putting a rosary on your car mirror is not going to stop you from getting in an accident. There's no power in that rosary. Getting baptized in the River Jordan is no more spiritual than getting baptized in a in a pool in Castor Valley. But you see, we infuse into circumstances and experience something more spiritual, something more powerful, and we think, aha, this is far better. Uh, one of the, the stories I tell about my trip to the Holy Land was, uh, was this is back before we had the shutdown as far as, what you could bring on a plane, all that kind of stuff. I mean, people literally, and this is, this is from a certain continent in, in our country, but they would come in droves and they would, they would buy these five-gallon petrol containers, plastic ones, and they would fill them up with water from Jordan. And they would take them on the planes with them as carry-on because they were taking them back to their villages, And you can just now begin to imagine how this water was going to be used. We have water from the Jordan that can bring healing to you. Why? Because it's from the Jordan. Friends, it's H2O. But you see, when you infuse it with something spiritual and it has power, now it becomes something. And now your effort and your focus isn't in the right place. It's on the object. It's on the thing. It has power to do these things. And this is all under the umbrella of Christianity. It's Just paganism repackaged and presented as Christianity when it's not. So remember, superstition is the belief that an action, an object, an idea, or an experience is somehow infused with power to accomplish something, often what I desire. And friends, superstition can also be very, very subtle. Um, it can take good things and make them superstitious things. So, for example, you're going through a trial of some kind. Maybe it's health or family or business. And in your heart, you need to know that you know, God's using this to say, you know what? You need to turn to me. So, all right, God, I'm going to turn to you. And here's how you function. This is what you think. You turn to him and you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray and then I'm going to go to church and I'm going to be regular in attendance and I'm going to go to small group and prayer meeting and anything they have there and then I'm going to read my Bible 10 chapters a day for the next month and I'm going to give my tithe and above my tithe and then if I do those things, God will see that I'm serious, then he will come to my aid. See what's going on there. It's not that you're saying these disciplines are helpful for my spiritual growth. What you're saying is I'm sacrificing here, I'm sacrificing here, I'm sacrificing here, I'm sacrificing here as a manipulative tool to say, God, pay attention to me, I need your help. It's a subtle form of superstition. My friends, we need to be careful because I think I've heard people say, you know, I tried God out and it didn't work. Work. You ever heard that before? And it's probably because they've pursued God in a superstitious way, not in a biblical Christ-like way. So friends, God calls us to pray, but not to manipulate him, but to, to long for and rest in his sovereign will. He calls us to feast on his word, not to impress him or manipulate him, but to allow his word to shape our hearts to be growing, to be more and more like him. He calls us to gather with the saints. Why? Not to worship him alone, not just to simply impress him, but to benefit from the help and the strength we can get from fellowshipping with the body of Christ. I don't know about you. When we sang it as well, did you have difficulty singing through that? And do you hear people around you having difficulty singing through that? We all go through different trials, but knowing that all these things that are happening in our lives that that I can look up to heaven and I can say to God, it is well. It's a powerful thing. It's one thing to do it alone, but it's another thing to do it with a congregation of people. We need the body of Christ, friends. And God calls us to give faithfully, not to impress him or to manipulate him to our will, but to show our joy and dependence on him. So friends, we move from the the good news illustrated and the good news distorted to now what I'm calling the good news proclaimed. With the crowds in a superstitious frenzy, wanting to offer sacrifices and praise and celebration of Zeus and Hermes visiting them on that day, the apostles respond. And the question is, how do they respond? Well, I want to say this, that how they respond gives us insight as to how we can faithfully witness in context or among people where there is no understanding of the Judeo-Christian world or the Judeo-Christian ethic. You see, the strategy that we've read so far in the book of Acts, if you remember from the last time you were here, or last couple of times, was that, was that uh, Paul and Barnabas would go into a country and then they would find the main city and once they got to the main city what would they do? They would find the synagogue and as fellow Jews because that's what they were, they were invited to say hey if you have a word why don't you share and they would get up and they would begin to, to unpack Old Testament scripture and point it to Jesus Christ showing how he was the fulfillment of it but they come into Lystra and guess what? There's no synagogue so how then do you how do you take the gospel into a context where there is no Judeo, in this situation, no Judeo understanding? There's no Old Testament scriptures. Of course, back then, it would just be the scriptures, right? What if the people have no clue about the scriptures? So so what we're going to have here is, is help while we're interacting with people that have no clue about the Bible, have no understanding of it. First of all, notice what he says. We are just like you. We're not these gods. We're not Zeus or Hermes. We are just like you. You might think that we're these gods come down in the likeness of men, but the truth is we are men of like nature with you. We're not gods. We're not demigods. We're human beings like you. And friends, it's important for us to remember this also. Because we may have favorite Christian leaders from the past or the present. i just rattle off some names here. Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, Martin Luther, uh, John Newton, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Charles Spurgeon, John Piper, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Mark Deverett, Billy Graham. You can add in all the people that you have held up. They are men just like you and me. They are human beings. Yes, they deserve our respect. Yes, they deserve our thanks and gratitude but they are men or they're women who have, in a sense, given us profound influence. But we must not think in any way, shape, or form that they are super-Christians. That somehow, being in their presence, now I have some greater power because I've connected with them. That's not true, friends. We've got to get away from that. And this is what Paul and Barnabas are saying. They're saying, look, we're just like you, Secondly, well, I shouldn't say secondly yet, all right? We're just like you. And friends, this is a helpful tool. This is a helpful tool as we navigate or interact with the unbelieving world around us that knows nothing of Christ and the gospel. Because it's my experience that far more we have far more in common with people from other cultures and religions than we think. In many ways, we are just like them. Let me just pause here and just say, it. many of us have grown up in a Christian context where it's almost like if this person's an unbeliever, they're the enemy. You have nothing to do with them. You stay away from them. Oh, you can share the gospel with them. That simply means sharing a couple of verses, but you, you avoid any interaction or contact with them. Now, what we find here is, 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 a, is a, a mechanism that says, hmm, that may not be the way that we go about it with these particular people. And, friends, what happens when when that is the case? We end up becoming a church that is a bubble that is not interacting with the world in the right way. You see, these people that we're just like, they want to get married, they want to have children, they enjoy having grandchildren. They work hard at the jobs that they go to. They enjoy vacations. They want to have hobbies that they can experience every now and then. They want to leave a legacy. They want to live in peace with those around them. They're just like us. And we have a lot of common ground that we can share. And so we we look for that common ground. We celebrate it with them. Their birthdays, their accomplishments, their hobbies, their interests. We don't kind of take this position, well, they're not a believer, so I'm just not going to do anything. No, this is is the way in. They don't have a Judeo-Christian ethic or understanding, and so the way we kind of enter into their world is by celebrating what we have in common with them. So friends, We Are Just Like You is a wonderful tool as we think through what gospel witnessing should look like. Secondly, not only we are just like you, but we bring you good news. in other words, they're saying, we are not the message, but only the messengers. Why? Because we're just like you. (laughs) See, we're just like you, but what we do have is we have a message. And we're the messengers of that message. We are witnesses. So the focus isn't to be on us, but the message that we are bringing. We're witnesses of what we have seen. This is what they're saying. We have seen that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That he was buried in in a sealed tomb. That he rose up out of the tomb on the third day. That he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Let's remind ourselves, the people that are here witnessing are people that observe this. Paul specifically, he's aware of this. He saw Christ post-resurrection. In the same way, we are just like you. Not any better than you, but we possess this good news. We're broken, we're sinful, we're needy, we're frail. And it is Christ who has set us free. The good news isn't good news or just good news for you. It is good news for us also. And see, that isn't always how the world perceives us, is it? You Christians think that you are better than us. You think you've got it all together. And the reality is, if they're going to be walking into a Christ-centered church, those people are going to be saying, "Uh, you've got that wrong, (laughs) If anything, we're worse than you, all right? So, we're just like you. We bring you good news. Number three, the good news is about Jesus. And I kind of identified four, four might say, explanations of Jesus that are really coming out of this text, the three of them specific. The first one is a little bit more implied in the context of what's going on here. Number one, Jesus is the one true God. See, he's not one of the pantheon of gods. He's the one true God. You don't have to wonder which God to turn to or if he or she is available. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one true God. Secondly, Jesus is the living God. He is not dead. But he's the God who conquered death. He rose from the grave. Jesus is the creator God. Sovereign over everything. He's he's not a God limited to a place or an activity. No, he's created everything. And he's sovereign over all of his creation. And he's a a God over it all. He, He competes with no other gods. He's it. And finally... Jesus is the good God. His grace extends to all. And this is what we read in verse 16. In past generations, again, this is Paul speaking now to this pagan people. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food, and gladness. In other words, all those times of joy, all those times of good harvest, all those wonderful experiences are the result of this good God at work in your life. Whether you knew it or not, this is what's going on. He is a good God. So when there's a drought and the land is parched and God brings rain, he isn't just bringing rain to his own people, but to all. See, this is what we call God's common grace. His kindness demonstrated not just to his own people, but to all, regardless of whether they deserve it or not. He's the one who allows you to have a fruitful harvest. He's the one who gives you good health. He's the one that allows your family to enjoy one another, to fall in love, to have the joy of children, to visit Disneyland or Hawaii together. It's God that allows that to happen. He is the one who fills your heart with gladness. Friends, this one true living God who is the creator of the universe and is sovereign over all is a good God and he is the one who is behind all of these common grace experiences of life and he is a good God there's a resounding theme I want you to hear here God is a good God And see, this is a different approach, isn't it? This is a different message, so to speak. And it's ultimately the same message because we're going to point to Christ being the one who died on the cross, but he's a good God. Now, I want you to notice the response of the crowd. This is not how you would think, you know, the Hollywood story would end. How do the crowds respond to the words? Verse 18, even with these words... I mean, just let that sink in. Even with these words, even with this ex- explanation, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. So full of superstition, so full of the need to worship the gods, uh, that th- seems like the word just didn't have much of an effect on them. Friends, it's a reminder that superstition, in particular, religious pagan superstition, is not so quick to respond to the gospel. It's a tough nut to crack. Now, we don't have to crack it. (laughs) God's the one who's doing that. He's in control of all. Now, were Paul and Barnabas failures here? Now, friends, they weren't failures at all. In fact, they were faithful to proclaim God's truth. Luke isn't giving us all of Paul's speech and his interaction with these hillbillies in Lystra. But it is clear that the word of God has taken root And let me show you that from the scriptures here. Look at the next few verses. Look at verse 19. Begin reading with me at verse 19. It's not going to be up on the screen. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. Now notice verse 21. When they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they what? They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Run out of these cities. Now they turn around and they go back. Why? Because in each of these cities, including Lystra, there are people who are now disciples of Christ. Who've heard the gospel. Who've embraced the gospel. So in this backwater town of Lystra, there were some Jewish believers. Go down to to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. In fact, you might want to look back a few verses, maybe a paragraph or so. This is Paul's second missionary journey. He is now with Silas. And notice it says uh, back in Acts 15, a little bit toward the end, it says, they are returning to visit the brothers in every city where they proclaim the word of the Lord to see how they are. So not only did they go back on this first missionary journey, they go back on the second uh, missionary journey. And notice chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So in this backwater town of Lystra, there were some Jewish believers, but not enough to have a synagogue. And yet the fruit of Paul and Barnabas's ministry in Lystra is the conversion of a young man by the name of Timothy. And Timothy would go on to help Paul as an assistant. Eventually, he would pastor the church in Ephesus. In fact, it is to his trusted Timothy that Paul passes the baton of the gospel. In 2 Timothy, the letter that he wrote to him, There, he's told to not be ashamed of the gospel, to preach the gospel, to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel, to follow Paul's gospel example, to guard the gospel, to entrust the gospel to faithful men. Now let me ask you, were Paul and Barnabas failures in their ministry in Lydia? Absolutely not. See, what might appear to be unsuccessful, God is still at work in. Now, friends, having looked at the good news, illustrated uh, the the good news, secondly, that has been distorted, and the third, the good news that is proclaimed, I want to bring this down now and and, and kind of revisit three different areas that, that flow right out of this text. And the first one is this. It has to do with, to do with strategy. do you have a gospel strategy and my and my question to you is you know we, we grew up and you probably have you know this is this is how you share the gospel, and you probably have one method of doing that, whether it 's you share the Romans road or maybe you were trained in evangelism explosion or whatever it is. I would say that most of us our methodology is is to take the word of God and to explain the word of God, hoping the people will listen to the word of God and the gospel is contained in it. And ultimately, that's where you want to be. But what we find here is that there are now, in Acts, two different strategies because of two different contexts and two different kinds of people. And I want to encourage you to begin to think differently about how you approach different groups, different cultures, different people groups with the gospel based on your understanding of where they are in their understanding of, I want to say, a Judeo-Christian ethic that comes out of the word of God. To the Jews, you show them from scripture that Jesus is the long for Messiah. And as we press on in Acts, Paul's going to continue to do that. He hasn't stopped doing that. He's going to continue to do that. And for us... The issue is this. Am I taking, talking to someone who is an awareness of and a respect for the word of God? Or is it someone who is totally clueless? To the Gentiles, Jesus is the good and living God. So for us, these are the people who have no awareness of that Judeo-Christian ethic. So what do we do? We find common ground with them, right? We're just like you. We introduce Christ to them. He is the living God. We talk about his goodness to them, right? He is a good God. But the goal is always to be moving forward as the, uh, to, toward Christ as the one who died on the cross to reconcile us to the Father. The gospel's still the same. The gospel doesn't change. But our entry into that gospel with the people might be a little bit different. And we see that here with Paul and Barnabas in two different locations. So I want to ask you, what's your strategy? Do you have a gospel strategy? You probably say, yes, I do. But maybe do you have a couple of gospel strategies? Because it's not just one strategy. The gospel's the same, but the gospel also can be presented in different contexts. Secondly, secondly, not just strategy, but secondly, superstition. Superstition. Are you a superstitious Christian? Are there habits and practices that you maintain which have been brought into your Christian walk, either by your past life or the culture that you were raised in that are superstitious practices? Friends, let me just mention a few of them. Are you concerned about honoring your ancestors? Do you find yourself making the sign of the cross? Do you experience fear and anxiety when something superstitious happens? Do you look to find out what your horoscope is for the day? Are you captivated by what you read in a fortune cookie? Which is all American nonsense, anyway. What does Paul instruct the superstitious crowd to do in Lystra? Verse 15. You should turn from these vain things to a living God. These are vain things. These are empty things. These ultimately are idols of the heart that you're bowing down to. If I rub my cross, God has to act on my behalf. I did what I'm supposed to do. God, you're supposed to do this now. That's Christian superstition, friends. This is not only a gospel call for salvation, turning from these vain things to a living God, it's also for our sanctification because we can be guilty of doing the same things in our Christian life. We bring sinful habits and sinful ways of thinking into our Christian lives, and over time, God works on us through his word to chip away at our sinful and superstitious habits, our thoughts and behaviors. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Colossae, exposes the problem, Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Listen to this. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. John Calvin identified the antidote to Christian superstition as the steady belief in the providence of God. Something bad happens, and you're tempted to be superstitious. Ah, stop. God is sovereign, and he's working out his providence. Listen to what he says. He says, the awareness that in every action, object, or circumstance is completely and wholly under the providential control and design of God, even the free choices and actions, both good and bad, of all people. He goes on to say, there is no erratic power or action or emotion in creatures, but they are governed by God's secret plan in such a way that nothing happens except what is knowingly, and willingly decreed by him. And friends, this is helpful. Because, and I don't mean to be silly about this, but you know, you get up one morning and you make French toast and you turn it over and there's a picture of Jesus on the back of the toast. <gasps> it's Jesus! And now you pick a picture of it, you put it on Facebook, and it's like, oh, I want to see this. And, and people can be consumed by that. That is nothing. Christ is Everything. And see, we're so drawn away by these superstitious things that we we don't look to Christ. And this is the final thing. Not just strategy superstition, but it's also Savior. Is Jesus your everything? In other words, when you find yourself in difficulty or trial, are you looking to manipulate him to your will? Or are you resting on him, seeking to trust his will? Superstition is doing what? Seeking to manipulate him to your will. Biblical Christianity is resting in him, seeking to trust his will. Friends, what is our text screaming at us about Christ? That Jesus is the one sovereign living God and he is good he is good. He is good. He is good. You're going through a trial. He's good. You're going through a difficulty and an argument. He's good. Things are happening with your job. He's good. It's only the devil who wants to distract us from Christ and somehow make us think that we need to do something extra or believe something extra other than Christ to get us out of our problem or to get what we want. But Jesus comes to us and he gives himself to us and he wants us to turn to him and trust him and to and to realize that he is a good God. He loves us, he cares for us, he speaks to us through his word, he counsels us, he protects us, he warns us, he rebukes us. And friends, there's so much of Jesus Christ in the well-known proverb, Proverbs 3, five and six. Just in light of what we've talked about here, just see how all this plugs right in here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, rabbit's foot. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That's his providence. That's his sovereignty. And he will make your paths straight. Friends, The gospel liberates us from pagan superstition. And today, the Lord wants us to have our eyes open to the fact that we can be caught up in it and not even realize it. Seek Christ, be liberated by him and his gospel. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the way in which we continue to learn not only how we can interact with you, but Lord, also how we can be witnesses that you've called us to be. And Lord, just to learn another tool and being able to interact with our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, Lord. And Lord, I pray that, that as, as, we, as we marinate on what we've done this morning and coming through this text, Lord, that, that, that questions will pop up and we will consider our habits and our behaviors and the things that we are relying on. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us wisdom, Lord, to flesh this out. And Lord, ultimately, may we come daily before you and and say, Lord, we, we want all of you. We want to rest in you. We want to see you as our everything. Help us, Lord, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.